Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Welcome, folks, to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, a slightly croaky Chris Holiday, And me, a perfectly eloquent Alex Sargent. Um, <laughs> now, this is, and I don't say this lightly, a monumental episode for three reasons mm-hmm. of the podcast. Um, the first is that this is our very first to feature our new theme tune, which you've just heard, um, composed by uh, music student Francesca Naranjo Araujo, who um, studies music here at King's College London. And we're really grateful to, to Francesca for putting this together and sort of doing, uh, I think when we spoke to her, we wanted something sort of, uh, the things that we do intellectually, we wanted the podcast to do sonically um, and I think she's really captured the, the relationship between fantasy and animation. Yeah, Francesca worked with us basically over the summer of this year um, going back and forth hearing our barely um, articulate ideas about music and translating them into something meaningful uh, and coming up with what we think is a really great theme tune for the show so we're uh, we're really proud of it. I hope you guys enjoyed it and you're going to be hearing it on all future episodes to come. So future listeners, this was the episode where it first started. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, Francesca's and it kindly put together an introduction or an introductory music um, piece uh, and then something that will serve as an outro for, for podcast episodes. Uh, and Francesca, we've asked her to reflect a little bit on her process um, and how she kind of came to uh, what fantasy animation sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there'll be a future blog post coming up, so do keep uh, keep your eyes peeled um, for that. Yeah, you'll be able to find it at fantasy-animation.org along with all our other blog posts. Um, we'll put a link to it somewhere obvious on the website as well. So do check out um, Francesca um, and give her a Google, see what else she's doing uh, and check out the rest of her work because uh, she's obviously very talented Yeah, very lucky to have her write our theme tune. Yes. So that's reason number one, Chris. What's yes. reason number two? Uh, second um, uh, reason why this is a, a special um, episode, if you like, a monumental episode, oh. um, is, is that this episode is, is the outcome of our recent social media poll where we asked you to vote for your favourite um, Don Blue film. Uh, you will have seen videos of Alex um, bringing out the hat, the infamous <laughs> hat out of retirement. Um, obviously, we did an earlier instalment where we looked at Land Before Time. You literally voted in your ones with the result nothing short of a landslide um, for this The Secret of Nim Bluth's first uh-huh. feature as a director from 1982 a surprise result yeah. I must admit I was convinced we were going to be talking about either Anastasia or um, or American Tale today but 
Secret of Nim is a film I really like. I think it really sets the sort of um, stage for Bluth's contribution to animation history really well. It's a great film to talk about, and I'm excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's lots, I think, in terms of anthropomorphism that we could we could um, reflect on. I think, yeah, the way that the character... And also something around character design that sort of h- helps to place Bluth. I've written in my notes somewhere between Disney and Bakshi, and I think this film's doing some interesting stuff with, yeah. with, with fantasy. Um, but the third... Um, reason why this is a monumental episode um, is that it's the, the film that has me and Alex back together in the same room <laughs> as we record for the first time face to face in about 18, 19 months or so. So no guests this time, just the two of us. Um, so if we weren't as excited um, enough to talk about early Don Bluth, I'm now literally sitting close enough to Alex to touch him. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, that's an odd way of phrasing it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, could, yeah. No, we're right here. here. We're um, in the room where it happens. It's, we are. Uh, it's great to be back um, after all that time on Zoom. Zoom. Um, we will probably Zoom now and again in yeah, future yeah. because it's been really great to connect with guests around the globe in the way we wouldn't and to involve listeners a bit more and we'll continue doing some of that. But it is nice to be back in a room recording, uh, seeing you across. Look at that lovely face. There it is. There it is. Oh, no, I get to see it, everybody. But there it is. Yeah. Um, video podcasts coming soon. <laughs> so uh, so this film, so Secret of Nim, cards on the table. This I'm not... I'm not uh, I'm familiar with the film, but I have never seen it. And But I feel like, Alex, you've encountered this film through your sort of um, research into fantasy. So where and how has this contact with the film happened? So I am I think I'm more of a Bluth yeah. nostalgia fan than, than perhaps you are. I watched a lot of Bluth films when I was a kid, but I, this wasn't one of them. I was American Tale, Anastasia, um, Land Before Time was the big one. We've, we've already covered that on a previous yeah. episode. Um, but but I did encounter Secret of Nim when I started doing very early research for my what eventually became my book, Encountering the Impossible, the Fantastic in Hollywood Fantasy Cinema. That was, available gratu- that was gratuitous. <laughs> available uh, bookshops. Um, so yes, um, and I was struck when I watched it by some of the stuff you mentioned in your intro there, just about sort of the the way in which it very clearly announces a departure point um, for Bluth. Bluth is often seen when I read him in animation history almost as the as the guy that, that kicked Disney up the bum and made Disney be more Disney. But actually I I don't see it that way. I think I think what Bluth does is he he creates a, an innovative and creative environment for animation. He may kickstart a vitality in the in the studio and a sense of competition. But Bluth's style, his way of making films, I think is very different to the Disney that came before it. Yeah. And and yeah. would be very influential on the Disney that would come. But this is a movie that has all kinds of differences to what we might call a typical Disney movie. And it is very much a flag in the sand. I am Don Bluth and I am making animation this way. Yeah. And we could talk about the ways it plays with rhetorics of fantasy, what it, the, the book that it adapts and the complexities of what that book's trying to do and the movement it fits within. But I think it's yeah. very much a, it's a Don Bluth movie and it sets the stage for what Don Bluth movies are going to look like mm. over the next couple of decades. So I think in that way, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I have a few notes around animated mice and rats and rodents <laughs> and things. But actually, I, ha- I had a... Dare I do? Now we're back in the room. Dare I do my own impossible question? Sure. Um, I and it, goes, it actually comes off of something you just said um, in relation to the to the 1980s. So this film is 1982, um, and I think a lot was happening in the 1980s, specifically at Disney. And I know that you've written about Disney's uh, kind of quote unquote dark ages. Mm-hmm. So my impossible question really was was. Bluth is making The Secret of Nim as an adaptation um, from a 1971 children's novel, Mm -hmm. uh, and he's making this as a conscious departure 
or supposedly a departure from Disney and announcing himself. Is this film, or did Disney's Dark Ages of the 1980s respond to this sort of film? Did it respond to Bluth um, in terms of you know what he was doing in the 1980s? Then you have, this is only three years before The, the Black Cauldron, which I know that you've written about. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's do a bit of context here. <laughs> sure. Disney's Dark Ages and Bluth. Yeah, well, uh, yes is the, is the easy answer to the impossible question. I can't help but see a trajectory from the kind of stuff Disney are making in the, in the mid-70s, yeah. so Robin Hood, yeah. um, even things like, uh, right back to the 60s, like 101 Dalmatians, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jungle Book, <clears throat> that, kind of, that kind of what we might call low fantasy effort, um, not in terms of quality necessarily, although that tends to be how they're read. Yeah. Um, and then we go, we jump to the, the so-called Disney Renaissance of you know Little Mermaid, Aladdin, these kind of films that, yes, in one way kind of look backwards towards Disney's law, but in many ways are very sophisticated efforts of world building. If you think about Little Mermaid, one of the massive embellishments of Little Mermaid is the underwater sort of um, universe that, 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 that Clements and Musk are kind of create and embellish within their screenplay. Um, and even things like Aladdin, the, the world of Agrabah, even the world of Pride Rock. Yeah. And I think Bluth's legacy to animation history should be that he is one of the most... Um, sophisticated builders of, of worlds in popular animation that I think we've ever had. I think all of his films are so rich, in not necessarily actually in their storytelling necessarily, but in the feeling of a world created on screen that Disney are just not, just not doing before this era. Um, so I absolutely think there is a clear influence on this, as well as things like Bakshi and Wizards, which we've done a podcast on before, in the richness they bring to the fantasy worlds they build, their desire to build fantasy worlds on screen, and how that then reflects in later um, studio efforts. Yes, things like The Black, uh, the Black Cauldron, but, which was commercially unsuccessful, but even things that become commercially successful that we know as sort of being classic Disney movies. Actually, they're, they're very much indebted to this kind of style of filmmaking. Mm. Well, what struck me about this film is, is that it is very much... If, if we place this film 1982, yep. um, the year before Disney had made The Fox and the Hound, um, mm. and it would be three years later that they'd make The Black Cauldron, mm-hmm. um, 1986 would be The Great Mouse Detective, which is I think is, is very much in conversation sure. yeah, yeah. with this film, um, especially the design of the villainous character, so Rattigan in um, The Great Mouse Detective and then I can't remember the name of the, the villainous one in Jenna in this okay. yes yes um, Jenna the villainous rat um, not to be confused with Jeremy who was an altogether different oh we've got plenty to say about him um, so and even 1977 The Rescue so you have The Rescue as The Fox and The yeah. Hound The Black Cauldron um, The Great Mouse Detective Oliver and Company, and then Little Mermaid. Sure. So clearly, these are, and that's when we talk. Is that right? When we talk of the Dark Ages, we're really talking about that sort of um, '80s ambivalent sure. relationship that Disney has to fantasy films. Well, well, yes. In, in I would argue that you know, in in the same way that the Dark Ages were never actually that dark, um, we've created this concept of the Disney Dark Ages because we are obsessed with kind of so-called classic Disney, the yeah. sort of Disney of the of the late '30s and the '40s into the 50s the, Disney didn't really last very long it's about like six movies but th- yep. those movies that we all know yep. and this the, this new batch of movies late 80s early into early 90s and therefore to, to, to kind of to valorise those two periods we create this sort of middle the second act where um, uh, things go badly and yep. certainly commercially things perhaps go badly but I've always liked a lot of those yep. so called Disney Dark Ages movies but the way I'd like to think about it is that 
is that if they feel a little bit less like those other periods, it's because they're drawing on what's popular. And what's popular during the 1960s, 70s and 80s yeah. is is fantasy and sci-fi and, and that kind of kind of... It's the emergence of what are now the popular genres of today, but Hollywood doesn't quite know how to do them properly. So... These animations are as much speaking to the films that are live action surrounding them. Things like, you know, um, the, the, the sort of early, the late 70s, early 80s high fantasy craze as they much as they are back to animation history. Ooh. So there's a really important bridging story here, which is that it's not that Disney have just suddenly decided not to make good movies. It's <laughs> that they're trying new references and new styles. Yeah. And Bluth is the one that goes, we can bring animation, storytelling, anthropomorphism, all those things that we've kind of sold and cutesified and, and made commercial successes mm. in dialogue with rich fantasy rhetoric, immersive stories, complicated stories, quest narratives. We can bring the two of those things together and we can create something like The Secret of Nymph that on the one hand is a is Lord of the Rings and on the other hand is Basil the Great Mouse Detective, isn't yeah, it? You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, um, that speaks to what let's say that the, the secret what what the secret of nim is doing is i would argue anticipating certain i mean mm -hmm. as i said the great mouse detective was definitely something that that connected up to to what i was what i was thinking about in terms of how this film treats as you say that anthropomorphic register and in, and in many ways this is probably going to be the episode where we we do anthropomorphism in 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 detail, we've talked about it and, and mentioned it in lots and lots of different ways and in lots and lots of different contexts. Um, but this film was really striking for me because it it talks about it talks about magic, but it also talks about electricity. Mm -hmm. It talks about um, humanity, but it also talks about sort of nature and industrialization. And and there's one line that really really gets it for me. So the, the villainous rat says, no taste for blood, they've taken the animal out of you. This is a really reflexive film about, not animation, we've done that before, but about anthropomorphism, about what it means to make non-humans uh, human-like yeah. and the fluctuations between the poles of nature and culture. And, and Bluth seems to be somebody, and I, and I think he is caught between a sort of industrial and aesthetic logic of, of Disney with a whiff of with of Bakshi. And there's there's something really striking about about Bluth's intermediary position and his yeah. uh, his rec his reconciliation of, of old and new, which I find really um, intriguing in this film. Right. Well, let's should we try and set up the sort of the story of the film then, or both the story in the film, but also the story of the film. So this is Bluth's first feature animation since departing the Disney Studio. If people don't know, Don Bluth was a was a you know a, a, a pretty high-ranking animator in the Disney studio in the late 70s, got frustrated with the way the studio was going, left and founded his own company and took quite a lot of the animators with him, yeah. um, set up these, these Don Bluth productions, uh, and this is the first effort uh, from that. And, and, and he had chose to adapt a, um, a fantasy novel, a children's fantasy novel from the early 1970s, which I believe someone pitched at Disney. I don't quite know the full story of this. I believe... Someone, whether it was him or not, pitched at as a possible Disney feature, and they no one kind of wanted it, so he took it and got the rights himself. And the, and the novel was called Mrs. Frisbee. Yep. Um, I say Frisbee because um, we're going to come to that in just a second. Uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, um, which is a an odd little novel uh, by Robert um, O'Brien. Um, an odd little novel in that it's a it's a it's a a book that kind of taps into quite a short-lived but very interesting kind of mode of fantasy, which we might call kind of 
for want of a better term, anthropomorphic high fantasy, in that on the one hand, it's a story about farms and mice and rats and voles and crows and the, the world of the film is very much set in, in this world. In, you know, it's in the farmer's field with mice who talk. So yep. there's a certain watership down, animals yeah, and farthing yeah. woods yep. um, element to it. But it's also a story about the grand owl and magic and wizards. And, uh, and so it's very much playing in um, that world as well. So anthropomorphic high fantasy in that the fantasy belongs to the world of the animals. There is magic in that world. But at the same time, the film is constantly and the book is constantly setting that in contrast with the world of humans and the world of, of real scale and all this kind of stuff. And it, yeah. it therefore has hallmarks of things like Brian Jacks's Red Wall series and, and other books to come that kind of play in this. On one hand, you could simply make all the characters, and I think you said this while we were watching the film, you could make all the characters, you know, there's Gandalf, there's, you know, there's, there's the, the adventurer, there's yeah. the plucky, there's the shire. There's the shire other stuff. Yeah. But also this is all set in a farmer's field. So that mm. on the one hand, it's Lord of the Rings, but on the other hand, it's Watership Down. Um, yes. And that's kind of what... The the playbook that Bluth is then using to make this film out of. Yeah. Um, that's the setup of the book. Um, we'll do the plot itself, but do you want to add anything to that? Well, I suppose the the going back to your point about scale, I, I was interested in in this sort of yeah ro rodent cinema and animation. Yeah. This this is you know ratatouille biker mice uh, from Mars, tube mice, which is about some mice that live on the tube, the, right. the underground. Uh, obviously, American Tale, uh, and then Basil the Great Mouse Detective, to name one of of many. Um, and why animation is continually drawn and actually to that to that sort of um, type of character and obviously Mickey Mouse but why and, and if Bluth is therefore trying to do something different with a well-worn anthropomorphic register up to this point um, and of course I think the film plays on even going back to something when we did um, Mr. Bug Goes to, to Town yeah. that sort of the jeopardy of scale but also um, the way in which anthropomorphic characters either live in a world of their own size and making or they live in a world which is of human scale uh, and that's what a lot of more recent computer animated films are interested in. This film is caught between those two ways of, of, of thinking about anthropomorphic characterization. Yeah. It's doing both the, the Disney, everything shrunk down to the animal size, and it's doing the jeopardy of a world that's bigger than them. As much as we're talking about a film set in a farmyard, there's a scale and ambition to the storytelling going on here that is that is... You know, really quite, you know, if you think about it, I mean, the film the film begins with, we get introduced to the main, yes, the, let's the do main the character, yeah. Mrs. Brisby. And according to the internet, which is always a reliable source. Tell me about the internet, Alex. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably hypocritical and nonsense, but I like it to be true. They changed the name from Frisby to Brisby at the last minute because Frisbee, the toy manufacturer, um, kind of got wind of this and, and they didn't want to, ha to have a Frisbee associated with this movie. So I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think I would watch this movie if the character was called Frisbee and think small plastic discs that you can, you know. Yes. But 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 fair enough. So Br Mrs. Brisbee, yes. who... Is a is a widow a wid I think before we yeah is a widow is a cat you know yes. she is she is that her husband has died some time before the start of the movie we never really find out exactly how long ago but I yeah. think we're you know she has two three young children so within the you know within her recent past hmm. her husband Jonathan uh, Frisbee who he keeps getting referred to she's often referred to as Mrs Jonathan Brisby. Brisby. You, you. There you go. So, so we've all we've all got it wrong. Um, Mrs. Jonathan Grisby. Uh, 
Brisby. Brisby. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, She's often referred to as everyone keeps who meets her knows about her husband because because she wouldn't be a female character if she, if she wasn't defined through her husband. Well, carry on. <laughs> yeah, but yes, yes. Okay, so there's that. There's that. I think the issue of her being a widow is really interesting yeah, yeah. because yes, there is that in that she is constantly referred. I don't do we even learn her first name in the movie? Um, no, she because when she first meets some of the other characters, the other characters are all referred. The, the men, Jeremy, Justin, um, Jenna, I suppose, yes. or the Great Owl. Uh, and she refers to herself, so she's voiced by Elizabeth Hartman, yeah. always refers to herself as, yeah, I'm Mrs. Brisby. So Brisby. <laughs> Mrs. Brisby, yes. Um, yes, so, so okay, yeah, so there is that issue in that she's often defined in relation to her husband. Her ho- husband, we found out, is this hero from the past. He's done some things we'll get to as we keep going through the plot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a problem. I don't think that's great. I do <laughs> think, I do think having the main character as a widow is an interesting one in that, one, we have a, a female protagonist leading this entire story. She's very much the, the, the kind of causal agent throughout the whole thing. Um, she's not defined in relation, other than the relationship to her husband and a kind of very vaguely hinted at romance with another character called Justin, who we're going to come to later. Yep. Largely, her story is about motherhood. It's about protecting her children. Um, basically, she has a sick child at home named Timmy. Timmy has pneumonia. He is um, basically... Tiny. He's, he's tiny, Timmy. Um, uh, yeah, you, you felt there was a whiff of Christmas Carol. Very much a whiff of a, yeah, uh, Christmas fun. Carol. Carry on. So tiny Timmy is at home uh, in bed, bedridden, has a massive fever. She's trying to sort of basically find a cure because she's worried it's on death's door. And, and the problem is, is basically she wants... To, she's been told at the beginning of the movie that to save her son's life she needs to keep him in bed keep him bed rest give him this medicine for about three or four days and within about one or two days the the the, the, the great move or the move is going to happen which is basically when the farmer plows his field yes. so mrs frisbee embarks on a quest to work out how she can um frisbee mrs brisbee <laughs> mrs grisby Ghibli, jibbly, jubbly. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Brisby is going to um, embark on a quest to yes. work out how she can both save her son and save herself from the great move and, and the farm. Uh, and that involves a series of characters who we will get to um, as we go on. Yes. Uh, it actually just struck me, you're right, that the, the position of Mrs. Brisby as a widow is really important because it, it potentially is one of the first instances of, or first instances in this film, whereby... Bluth is, is and I don't want to continue talking about Disney, but at least tipping the hat to Disney, because one of the things... Is, that, is it Bluth or Floof? Oh, it's Groove. Groove. Um, <laughs> I am Groove. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, one of the, the ways in which classic Disney, the classic Disney formula has been understood by um, Janet Wasco and, and Chris Pallant writing on Disney formalism, lots and lots of people that have written about the, the formulaic nature, however illusory, um, of that classic Disney period is to do with families and, and to do with um, nuclear families that are sort of incomplete uh, and single parents. And this happens a lot in uh, Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin, you have the Sultan, but you never have Mrs. Sultan, etc. Sure. Um, this is really interesting because that's, that's never really talked about by the characters in the film, maybe in a sentence or if only your mother was here or something yeah. like that, but never really made the focal point of mm-hmm. a film like this. So I think you're right, there is a, a really interesting taking that single parent element that is often, you know, notable by its not being talked about in Disney films, and then actually yeah. making it a really strong element of this film that allows allows the the, the film to sort of yeah, do do something with family that is 
a lot of movies are about family in, in all but name, i.e. friends that become family. But this, this has a really interesting way of, of, of thinking about yeah. lost loves. Uh, and, and Mrs. Brisby talks about herself talks about herself in relation to her husband. Other characters refer to her, as you say, um, through this, this, these actions of her, of her amazing husband that only become clear during the, the, end, of the end of the film. Interestingly as well, they also, also talk about themselves as a woman or as a man. Um, Mrs. Brisby, I'm a, a woman. And, and that also got me thinking about anthropomorphism sure. and their sort of acknowledgement of, of their rodentness. Yeah. But and, and the other thing it does is obviously it, it, it's a film about motherhood and powered by motherhood. Yes. Where motherhood is a, is a presence rather than an absence. Yes. Which is what, which is what happens in, in a lot of um, other popular animations to stop using the D word. Um, you know, other, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting, quietly different, but quietly revisionist um, step in the right direction. And it struck me having watched Land Before Time recently that actually you yeah. know i'm not i'm not claiming these movies are are you know anything to offer anything like a contemporary progressive take on gender but i am saying in early 1980s to have mrs brisby at the center of this story and a character like sarah the the female triceratops at the at the front of land before time who is probably the most interesting character in that movie there is an attempt to do to do better by women in these stories mm. than perhaps could be said of previous movies. I guess we have Miss Bianca in um, Rescuers, but she's very much defined in relation to the male, um, Bernard, and um, very much sexualized. She's not, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Brisby is a, is, is a determined, focused, um, brave when she has to be, maternal when she has to be, compassionate when she has to be, yep. uh, furious when she has to be, character. Um, yeah. and, and I think, good. <laughs> well, well, it's not, it's not a, a a film about her um, discovery of her. She already has the qualities yeah. that a lot of Disney characters end the film with having acquired. Yeah, no, she, she just gets on with it. She just she begins the film with having these characteristics, um, and 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 also what I liked is the way in which it stages the film stages its ac action sequences. So one of the first action sequences in the sort of lead up to the big move yeah. is the threat of industrialization, but it's, it's scaled down to well, nature versus culture, but it's scaled down to, uh, essentially a tractor with a, yeah. a combine <laughs> as it, as it twists and turns and trying to, to save the home that Tiny Timmy, which I sure. now can't not call yeah. him Tiny Timmy. Yeah, so he's um, in bed and he, uh, because he needs to quarantine. <laughs> um, and, um, and there is a sort of action sequence whereby both Mrs. Brisby uh, and then Auntie Shrew are... Oh, yeah, I like her. So these two female characters are essentially tasked with jumping onto the combine and unplugging all of the pistons and, and removing the fuel and all this sort of stuff in order to prevent the the combine from, from running over the home. And it reminded me of the, the Big Ben sequence from Basil the Great Mouse Detective and how these characters jump between mm -hmm. the sort of whir whirring cogs and, and pulleys. But also it's a really great little action sequence mm -hmm. that, that reflects on their aptitude or reflects on their physicality. And that chimes with a later sequence where she's ultimately captured inside a cage and she sort of works out through trial and error how to get out. And it's really interesting that the, I think the female, sorry, I think it's really interesting that the male character, Justin, 
just departs and says, oh, I'll come back for you later. And he never comes back, but it doesn't matter because she manages to escape. Yeah. And so there's something, yeah, re really striking about how the film acknowledges, but then doesn't over-egg her powerful status as, a, as an empowered woman because her, her empowerment is not something that's exceptional to her gender. It's sort of an accepted part of it. Well, yes, yes, yeah. There's no, there's no point where they, you know, they could do a kind of Moana-esque. She's unusual because she's powerful. Yeah, she yeah, speaks yeah. her mind. Yeah, they're right. just, just again. There's a lot of just getting on with yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a quietness to yep. her character that I, yeah, I, th I think I think I found quite refreshing and I, I liked. So yeah, we we start by sort of journeying through the fields with her, don't we? She she visits a sort of you know. What is he? A sort of scientist mouse figure, Mr. Um, Ages. Mr. Ages, and yep. gets a cure for Timmy. Um, then she um, kind of journeys back through the field. She meets a quote-unquote lovable sidekick named Jeremy. Whoa! Let's pause on Jeremy. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Jeremy is looks like well, he looks. There's a Dis when we talk about the Disney aesthetic, and uh -huh. we, we're talking about sort of hyper realism and the 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 again going back to, to Palance's idea or Chris Palance's idea of Disney formalism and a certain degree of hyper realist um, qualities to, to Disney characters and the the idea of, you mentioned cute earlier on actually sure. the sort of the the um, cuteness of, of of rounded characters. Now, Jeremy looks a lot like a Disney character. But also the performance of the character feels very incongruous, yeah. I think, with, with the film. It's a, he feels like a reminder of the kind of animation the film isn't doing Yeah, in a yeah, strange way. Because cause quite a lot of this movie is about kind of, um, I don't know how to articulate this really, kind of shuffling and like odd conversations where someone will start a sentence and then there's a, whole, there's a bit where like Mrs... Mrs. Brisby, like, goes to say something, goes, oh, no, I won't say it, like, walks around the corner, comes back and then says it. Like, there's a lot of, like, just nuances of, like, you believe these characters exist, you believe in the world, there's muffled dialogue on occasion, there's yep. quite quiet bits of dialogue. It's all very kind of muted and, and somewhat austere and, and, and measured and, mm. you know, it feels... It feels lived in and built and like mossy and, and all this kind of stuff. And then we get Jeremy, the wisecracking crow, who just sort of, thump, you know, is this kind of, yeah, like slapstick. He has never seen an elephant fly, I'll <laughs> yeah. tell you. He well, is. yeah, he's that. He's Aladdin, you know, the genie. He's like, he's very, you know, um, eccentric, very mm. physical, lots of jumping about, lots of slapstick, lots of wisecracking. I suspect if I was under 10 and I met Jeremy, I'd think he was the best thing in the film. Um, <laughs> I did not think that because I'm not under 10. Right. Um, okay, good, good. <laughs> yes. good sir. Um, Mossy. So I think this taps into the world of junk that animation is often fascinated with, with mm -hmm. junk and, and tins, old tins and cartons and, and uh, uh, bottles to, to build world. This is, I would say this is, has been intensified um, more recently. There's a, a, an excellent chapter on junk art and the computer animated film in a book that's also still available in hardback and paperback. And what's that book called? Uh, that is called The Computer Animated Film. And then after it is, is a very monstrous misuse of an Oxford comma, industry style and genre. Anyway. The chapter on junk art. Like, well, did you have to do? Did, did you have to do that? Was that a publisher thing? No, no, I just forgot to put it in. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, we'll cut. We'll cut this bit out. Sure. Um, there is a chapter on junk art, but what, what's going back to the the, the secret of this? The use of junk tells us about the community because it tells us about their um, 
artistry and their endeavor and their ability to, to build worlds out of the things that we throw away. But also it gives the world a history. So going back to your point around Don Bluth and, and fictional worlds, the lived in quality I think comes from the fact that these objects didn't begin and end when the film began. Actually, we are seeing an old, I can't remember, fuel tin or yeah. something like that um, towards, positioned I think right towards the beginning of the film, maybe by Mr. Ages's yeah. Um, home, but there's a, a real, or maybe it's it's her own, Mrs. Brisby's own home. I can't remember. Um, but there's a real sense in that that had a. This film is interested in the afterlife of objects and and the stuff that we throw away can be repurposed and reused in a way that is. I, we are we are able characters are able to build worlds out of them, and that that sort of mossy quality stuff that is we've thrown away because it's past its shelf life have been yeah. reclaimed. And the film takes its time to kind of celebrate those spaces. As I say, the first scene is like, is basically the plot is um, Mrs. Brisby needs some medicine for her son. She gets some medicine, the story starts. But it takes about four or five minutes. They go down various rooms, various chambers. Yeah. We're introduced to a space, a feeling, a place. Mm. Um, and yeah, that kind of hyperactiveness of Jeremy is at odds with a movie that isn't very hyperactive. It's got yes. a lot of things to say and places to go and people to see, but it's it does it in a kind of much more, you know... Visual. He does it in a visual way, whereas yeah. Jeremy is the verbal, quickfire equivalent of information. He is yeah. Basil Exposition from um, the Austin Powers films. Tell me about the things. Well, Tell except me about that he doesn't do anything to do with the plot no. ever. He just kind of flies in... Uh, Mrs. Brisby gets a bit irritated, tells him to go away and do something to distract yeah, him. Yeah, so even she's annoyed. Yeah, and by you're him. like, why are we? Why are we dealing with this guy then? If you're even the main character's annoyed by them, why? Why are you here? But yeah, so there's this crow. He's called Jeremy. He kind of vaguely helps her along the way, but actually, as you say, seems more of a kind of gesture to traditional animated convention than it does. Just a nice little sideline. I just found it was a nice, whether it's whether it's as self-conscious as we want to... Yeah, okay. This is a deliberate acknowledgement of the world that Bluth has left behind. It would be great if it was, okay. but it's, it just felt like an interesting sidelining of, of a different kind of, of animated character. So Mrs. Brisby goes back home. She uh, We are introduced to her children, her domestic space. Um, yep. Yes, her friend, the kind of... What's her name? Aunt Shrew, is it? Yeah, yeah, Aunt um, Shrew, who, yeah. Who, um, who, is kind of a brisk matriarch figure who who is both an ally but also kind of you know speaks truth. She does not her. suffer fools gladly. No, that's right. Yes, absolutely not. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and then the kind of real high fantasy quest begins because they decide that to how are they going to you know look after Timmy and also not um, and escape the big plow. They will, of course the only thing they can do go see the great owl. Um, yeah. So. Bef but before all oh, right, yes, no, okay. but before all of that, we have a little prologue. We have a little beginning of the film. Yes, you have you. If this is this is not the Disney storybook, this is a book being written. Yes. a book, a magical book being written, very Lord of the Rings esque. I put at a sort of unseen or truncatedly seen wizard. Yes, we don't. And so that that we only see his kind of gnarly hands and and it's difficult i think at, at moments to figure out whether this is human or or animal yes. and i was trying to figure out what that sequence does in relation to what follows does it set up a film does it write a, a check that the film doesn't then cash or deliberately makes the check bounce so i am interested in that yes yeah, so we're introduced to this unknown kind of yeah. wizardy thing you don't really see his face 
He's looking through a magical globe. He keeps commenting on what Mrs. Brisby's doing. Yep. Um, he's writing spells, incarnations. He's gnarly. He's twisted. Um, his features are kind of angular. And, yep. Yep. and I wonder, because I've obviously seen the movie before, and, and, and it's been a while, so I, I remembered who that character was. Did you think that might be the villain of the piece when yep. you first yep. saw it? Absolutely. Uh, and, it, and it chimed with a, that, a, a Bakshi-esque, oh, this is what the film's doing. Late seventies, eighties. Yeah. We, you know, with the wizards and the, as you as you know, like the the, the way of what year? What year was Bakshi's Lord of the Rings? That was seventy eight. Right, right. Okay, mm-hmm. so we've had wizards and we've had Lord of the. This felt yeah. very much cut from the sl- from the same imaginative fantastical cloth. Yeah. Uh, and then the film didn't didn't follow that up, and it was only when the character reappeared later. Um, We've got we've had our great owl, our Gandalf character. Yeah, so he's a big old soothsayer owl thing. He tells him to so he tells Mrs. Brisby to go see the rats of Nim, and crucially go see their leader Nico 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 Nicomendis. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Thank you very much, Nicodemus. Yeah. Uh, so Nicodemus, uh, the the leader of the rats of Nim. Plot is set up. Who are these rats? What's Nim? What is the secret? Oh my God, Mrs. Brisby's going to go and find out. And it's revealed as she goes to find out and, and encounters these rats of Nim that Nicodemus is this is this figure we've been seeing, this kind of gnarled wizard, yep. somewhat Gandalf-like, but also kind of Rasputin in a later Bluth movie, Anast- uh, Anastasia-like in his composure. And I think that's deliberate. I think it's very significant in this movie and in the book that the most civilised creatures in this entire story are rats. Yeah. And that rats are actually on a kind of more higher noble, noble plane than voles and mice and all this kind of stuff. It's the rats that are the source of good. Also the source of tension and evil, but the source of good within the story. And this Nicomendis, who we, who we think by design... It's going to be this gnarly evil character because he looks a bit like that. He's yeah. actually a very benevolent, yep. avuncular, Gandalf-esque figure. And I can't help feel that's deliberate. What th- th- We'll get to the secret of Nymph in a minute. But one of the things that we are revealed about the, se- the, the rats very early on is that we think they're going to be these dangerous, evil, evil rats, you know. Yeah. Um, but actually the film flips that around and the rats are a source of hospitality, of civilization, yeah. of, of grandeur. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's narrativized in the story that comes. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and their their relationship to sort of energy and, and being a building a self sufficient community, which we'll talk about in relation to anthropomorphism and and how they come to to acquire intelligence. Yeah. Um, Nicodemus, yes, he's an unseen wizard, but there's some interesting. At one point, or, or I think it's his second appearance. You have the the prologue, yeah. which sort of sets up. Uh, a ma- the, the the role of magic in a film. Then everything after that is pretty matter of fact. Up until the threat isn't magic and demons, it's pistons and pumps on a on a combine. He then reappears. Yeah. Um, seems to be watching over events in the film. Yes. Are these past events? Are they f- happening live? Are they future events? I thought that was a really striking way of of is he predicting future events or is he reflecting and and he sort of assumes the role of narrator again and, uh-huh. and I just thought that was a really striking way. He looks into his, essentially his magic mirror yeah. and sees through a portal characters and comments on the characters and, and that's where the benevolence starts to appear. Yeah, absolutely, him. yes. And, and he's... He, you know, he is a he is a sort of he's a wizard, you know, and and why he's a wizard and how he's a wizard is never really explained, and that's kind of 
part of the joy of a yeah. character who's a wizard is you know you don't want you don't need Gandalf to be explained necessarily I'm sure a Tolkien fan will now contact me and explain exactly how because it's in you know paragraph 87 of the appendices but you know I don't need it thanks you know these are characters that live outside of rules that embody a certain potentiality a certain um, mm. a, a, and and on, as much as the civilization of these rats so Bisbee journeys to visit them. They live in a in a rose bush in in the garden. But actually, once she gets inside the rose bush, she discovers, as you say, you know, electricity, working lights, contraptions, lifts, great palaces, great yeah. a great civilization, a debating hall, a debating hall, <laughs> living under um, these this this um, grand. All the rats are dressed in robes, and there yeah, are yeah. there are there's a military of rats. There's a a, yeah. a, a a council of rats, and and so we are struck by talking about world building. We've gone from a world where people are living in baked bean cans and there's an owl living in a nest in the woods and Jeremy's hanging out in the field being a crow and what's the cat? There's a kind of adversarial cat who's the farmer's cat called like Dragon, is it? Yes, Dragon. Dragon the, the cat, bowl. Yeah, yeah. Who's very much just, you know, a sort of classic anthropomorphic Definitely, fat, fat killer not, demon cat. Yeah, yeah, definitely not ominous. We just should have called the cat demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So we've gone from this world of, of vaguely... Vague anthropomorphic. I mean, you're going to have to talk me through this, but anthropomorphic in a, in a kind of lower register. These are very much micey micey mice and yeah. owly owls, and they talk and they 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 communicate and they potentially wear a cloak every now and again. But they are largely defined by mousenessness mm. um, to rats that are actually much more like humans than they are rats. We go to Rat City essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I know I've talked about this on on previous episodes, but anthropomorphism is often used as a synonym to describe a whole number of ways that animals or animalistic qualities and human-like qualities come to, to intersect. And, and Paul Wells, in his book, The Animated Beastiary, talks a lot about what he calls the Madagascar problem, which is, and again, I've, I know I've mentioned this before, the, the, the way in which animals in films are presented as a series of contradictions between their natural animalistic impulses and then their ability to, to sort of talk like Chris Rock. Sure. Um, and their human-like qualities and their the, the things that they feel versus the things that they feel as animals. So he terms this the Madagascar problem and, and this sort of bestial ambivalence, he terms it, that, that comes with the territory with regards to, to anthropomorphic characters that are in flux. Uh, and so I've been interested in, in perhaps nuancing that term and, and thinking about other ways in which human-like and non-human-like characters or characteristics collide. Um, and so writing on therianthropy, um, talks about different kinds of... So a, a, a therianthrope, a good example of a therianthrope would be uh, in Beauty and the Beast, uh, Cogsworth and Lumiere. Right. Um, they are anthropomorphic characters, but actually they are human-like characters that have been transformed into into objects. So they are therianthropes because they, they began life as human. And actually... Therianthropy more accurately describes what we term anthropomorphism in, in Disney because there's no real engagement, as you say, with mouseness. It doesn't matter. Well, it depends that. which one we're talking about, right? But Mickey Mouse, certainly. Yes, yeah, so Mickey Mouse can drive a, a steamboat, no problem. Sure. Um, and there isn't the sort of... Yeah, there's, there's more of an engagement with his his symbolism as a human for us to engage with. Whereas certainly there are, there are more... Yeah. There are differences in anthropomorphic characters, more so perhaps of degree rather than kind, where there is more of an engagement with ratness, so Ratatouille or, yeah. or B-movie. It's, it's well, we could call it the kind of Goofy to Pluto uh, yes, scale. Yes. They're both dogs, but 
but yes. Goofy is not really a dog. Yes, one wears a waistcoat and one doesn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that 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 is, uh, I would say, Goofy is a therianthrope because he might as well be a human that has yeah. been turned into a yeah. a dog. Or and that's a human. quite useful because then you're thinking, okay, what kind of human is Goofy? And then we can start to pick apart yeah. what it's playing he might on. As well, he yeah. might as well be Cogsworth or he might as yeah. well be Lumiere. Was a human, click of, uh, click yeah, of the fingers okay. and turned into a, an, an animal. Whereas, yes, Pluto is more of an anthropomorph because he is, there's at least more of a leaning towards his animalistic behavior. Yes. Um, some animals can play basketball in Space Jam and some are just animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this, so, to, so Secret to of summarize. Nim, <laughs> Secret of Nim is really kind of playing with that yeah, scale yeah. then because we have Dragon, the, the cat, who is a cat. Yes, there's it has no, to be a cat because his threat to the mice comes from the fact he's a cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no, you know, the cat doesn't speak, it's a nope. cat. Yeah. Uh, to Jeremy and Mrs. Brisby who are... They can talk, they communicate to one another, she can read uh, yes, a little yes. bit. Her husband taught her, as she mentions. Yeah. Again, reading is a significant plot mark, twist. Marker, yeah. marker of this scale in, in this story. Yeah. Um, uh, and and, and um, Auntie Shrew and all these characters. Might as well be, yeah, might, might as well, well be. Well, well there's, there's, I would say they, they, they could, maze, they, they are, they are more, you think they may as well be humans, but then when we're introduced to the rats of Nim, there is a certain, there is a desire to ask you to see them as more, what's the word you used? Uh, therian. M more therianthropic yeah, 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 than, yeah, yeah. than Mrs. Frisbee. Miss, Miss, Mrs. Frisbee is... Yeah. This um, is a fun game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Mrs. Frisbee is more mouse yes. than the rats of Nim are rat-like. Yes. And that becomes part of the plot. Why are the rats less rat-like then the mice are mice-like, and the voles are vole-like, and the Jeremy is crow-like, and all this yes, kind of yes, stuff. Yes, yes, So yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the The film is really interested in gradations of anthropomorphic behaviour to the point where it leans towards yeah, kind of more therianthropic understandings of human transformation into object or creature, as I said, that the Lumieres of this of this world. Um, I would also cast Basil the Great Mouse Detective. He lives in a world of his scale, of he has a pipe of his yeah. size. So some characters in, in The Secret of Nim do do come across like that. They their world is to their scale, they built them, they might as well be be human. But you're absolutely right. When more when this world is fleshed out, you really get a sense of the scale of different ways or different Different kinds of bestial ambivalence to go back yeah. to, to Wells' town, and, th and, th and that's what makes this a much more complex story than yes. like there are other there are other examples of this kind of anthropomorphic high fantasy, which is much more what you're talking about. They may as well be human. I mean, yeah. there's the, the, as I say, the Red Wall series was a massively successful children's things, and that's you know the rats are the, all the villains are rats and wild cats and and evil evil animals, quote unquote. Yep. All the good guys are mice and voles, and they live in abbeys and and homes, and they have feasts, and they may as well be human. All that. Yes. What's that Zack Snyder thing? The um, Al, uh, the owls of Gahul. The owls of Gahul. Yeah. Yes. That, that, I mean, yes. again, they they may be owls in the title, but they may as well not be owls. Yes. There's very little owlness going on in here. But it is essential to this story that you think about that scale of of anthropomorphism yes. in this in this film because it's part of the narrative. It's part of the the tension and the relationship between characters. Yeah. Well, the reason you're asked to think about it, as you say, is because it's it becomes folded into what the narrative is about. So. If I've if I've got this correct, now you said that you asked me before we started if I knew what Nim stood for. Yes. It was mentioned very briefly in the film because that really un unpacks 
that that was an interesting moment because it unpacks the character the believability of a fictional world is often rooted in characters that can't possibly know everything so that's why they they discover or they don't realize that they are being rats are being part of a experiment or being captured and being part of a scientific experiment so nim stands for so i think you might have to check on your because you've got access to google i think it stands for national institute of mental health and it's said once in the movie and it's a throwaway line it's made a much yep. bit more bigger deal of in the book yeah in the in the in the film you you blink and you'll miss it it's about halfway through yep. you hear the farmer's wife say have those has the national institute of Ma- mental health been on the phone or some, something something yeah, yeah, to that yeah, effect yeah it's it's a throwaway little line and it's it's there to tease you as it can you put two and two together about what nim is the rats never say that they never they only refer to it as nim but they do explain their origin story eventually or at least Nica, Nica, uh, nicodemus does um and he, he explains that the plot twist the secret of nim spoiler alert spoiler yep. alert is that is that these rats were experimented on in a laboratory they've been injected with all kinds of things and essentially been given a, a partial form of human consciousness yes they've been given an ability to they you know it's never quite explained exactly what's happened, but it's a sort of Flowers for Algernon-esque kind of narrative of... It's, it's Cogsworth again. It's Cogsworth and Lumiere, the, the magic of Beauty and the Beast. They've injected turn. humans... Yeah. Yes, all right, fair enough. Yeah, human spirit into animal. Yeah, so they um, might as well... So so the reason yes. that they're so refined and cultured yes. is that the film narratively, and similarly to Beauty and the Beast, does what the, the Beast... And that obviously the whole film about yeah. Beauty and the Beast is about his internal tension, but... The fact is that he was, he began life as a human, and and one of the, the issues with Beauty and the Beast is if he was he began life as a human and transformed into an animal, why has he forgotten? Has he lived as a beast for so long? He's forgotten what cutlery is because yeah. he had a good twenty years of knowing what cutlery was. But anyway, yeah. um, so this film does a similar kind of thing. It in, as you say, inject quite literally injects humanity into these characters, yeah, okay. turns them into not just. Um, a rat that we go, oh, look at the little fella in a sort of vague understanding of anthropomorphism. But it almost turns them into what fantasy and literature would understand as therianthrope, like the, um, the mythology of the therianthrope, i.e. a human that yeah. was transformed or a, a, a half-human half. It's that hybridity that the film brings out um, by having a, a sort of scientific sequence. So, like. so the, when the novel came out, it was yes. it was relatively well received. In fact, it was very well received, but a criticism that was levied at it, which I'd be interested to see what you thought about in terms okay. of the movie, yep. is, was, a, was the same criticism got levied at that B-movie thing, which is that like, <laughs> so hang on a minute, that there's no basically that that revelation of the secret of Nymph destroys the logic of the story because this is the argument is that is that if if the reason the rats can speak and the reason the rats can write and the reason the rats are civilized is because they were injected with um a serum a serum yeah yeah what's mrs brisby doing yes because mrs brisby can also speak and move about and stand on her hind legs and wear a cloak and live in a house and all this kind of stuff but but she isn't injected with this same serum so if you're going to rationalize that part of the anthropomorphic register, you've kind of broken the spell of animals can talk that's sort of implied yeah. throughout the rest of it. So, yes. And I, and I, I mean, not necessarily my criticism, but a criticism a, that was levied yes. at it. Well, one, I would say speech is often a shorthand. That's the difference between, say, Goofy and Pluto. You know, that speech is often a shorthand for understanding this kind of register. But for me, it's the the difference between Mrs. Brisby and... Well, I suppose Mrs. Brisby and 
uh, Jenna, the villain. The villain of, yeah, the there's a villainous rat who wants, what does he want? He wants, we'll come to that in a second. There's yeah. Jenna. Who's I'm not entirely sure I know what he wants, but. Is, is it, are we having a no time to die? We problem? are having <laughs> a, what's his plan? And yeah. It, so the difference between Mrs. Brisby and, and say Jenna, so Jenna being one of the rats who has been injected, presumably, yes. which is why he's. Well, all the, I think all the rats all have the rats. been injected. Well, it certainly began with a handful, but presumably that's accelerated. Um, I guess so, yes. Yeah, there seems to be more than there were, right? Yeah. So the difference between Mrs. Brisby and Jenna is their ability to to be able to at least embrace part of their rodent identity. Mm. So there is a difference between Mrs. Brisby use, exploiting her ratness to get into the combine, to, to go up and through and around and... and the failure of Jenna to, to be able to behave like a rat, and in fact he ends up, the climax is a sword fight, yes. which might as well be between two humans, the good and the bad, between Justin and, and, and Jenna. Um, so I think there's it, that part of the, the clarification of that different register is to do with um, Mrs. Brisby still has the aptitude to behave like a rodent, whereas that, has, that, that avenue has been shut off because of the experimentation, these 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 rats can no longer live typically as rats, and that element of their of their identity. And in fact, when we first meet the rats, uh, that's why that kind of debating room, the council, is yeah. really important. They are all standing in robes. They are they are not doing ratty things, and they never really do ratty things. Whereas Mrs. Brisby, her ability to escape from that cage is because she leans on her ratness and being able to contort her body now up and out through the cage. Yeah. So her moistness. Her moistness, sorry, yeah, yeah. Her rodentness, yes. if you will. Um, um. But there is a, I, I think it's the, the, whether or not the, the ability to perform as a rodent, to, to perform as a, as a non-human, is something that the film allows these characters to do, and when it allows them to, to do it. Um, I, I also think it then makes the story more self-conscious about what its themes are, because it's a, it then becomes about you know, if, if if the story were there are animals like mm. dragon, uh, and there are you know there are animals, and mm. then there are these rats that got injected with this serum, and they are anthropomorphic, and they can speak, and they can talk, and that's that's the only schism. Yeah. Then what that is is exactly what you're saying. It's a story about humanity. It's a story about what. Ma it's not about a clash between animal and human identity. By having it as this more kind of liminal sliding scale, it becomes a much more kind of, you know, you're asked to think about where the divide should go. I mean, there's a there's there's lines that are almost tragic about their, the fact they've lost in touch with their ratness, isn't there? Because yeah. there's this, you know, there's this whole thing that, they, that they've, they're using electricity because they're stealing it from the farmer. And they're like, we, we can't do this anymore because we know too much. We know that stealing is bad. We know that yeah, we can't yeah. live like rats anymore. So we're going to have to move. It's going to be really dangerous. We're going to have to kind of journey into another world, uh, another place. They, they do refer to the place they're going to, but I don't quite remember what it's called. Thorn it's, Valley? And you never see it. They just no. kind of go there at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, but they're going to travel to this new place, not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to, because they know that, that they can't live like this anymore. Their, mm. their conscience won't allow them anymore. And, yeah. Je but, and But Jenna, you just said that Jenna couldn't be ratted enough but of course Jenna's plan he doesn't want like he's a he's he says let's stay where we are there's nothing wrong with mm. where we are we we don't need to move we can we can be more ratty if yeah. you will um so it becomes about that kind of interplay rather than it being sort of so simple as that no as you were as you were talking I was thinking about that when when Mrs. Brisby is captured and I was thinking about the moment where she's underneath the floorboards she takes off her 
markers of humanity. She takes off her cape, yeah. and she takes, or she's encouraged to take off her cape because it might catch. And she takes off this sort of amulet and hangs it up. And then she becomes a rat for five minutes and gets captured. And the child puts a, a, a sort of um, cup over her or a colander or something and says, I've caught a rat, we need to get rid of it. Um, and then she's put in a cage. And then when she manages to escape, she resumes her humanity, pops the yeah. cape back on, pops the amulet on, and then goes about her business. And that is a really interesting sequence. Her, when she's a rat, when she's a, a mouse, sorry, when she's a rodent, when she embraces her rodentness, um, she's captured and she's treated as such. She's treated as a rodent by the, by the child character. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting yeah. um, momentary lapse in her humanity that is that then creates, you know, she's captured from it. But yeah, anyway. um, yeah I mean, I, I don't have much else to say other than the scope of voice work from British to US voices is sort of what 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 that means in relation to the performances because some characters or, or um, yeah are the rats I oh know that all the rats are British except Justin who's like yeah. as I say this kind of all handsome American. hunky yeah, rat yeah. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. Mrs Brisby um, kind of flutters her eyes out she flutters her eyes twice in this movie once kind of when she first sees this Justin but that that's not that's not really enacted on after that. No. Because Justin leaves at the end of the movie and there's no sense of a romance. She doesn't, need, she doesn't need a romance to complete herself. Well, she's good, but there is a... There is a she's clearly I attracted to him. I thought the film was going to do yeah. that, yes. She's okay. clearly attracted to him when she first sees him. And then she also does it in a very kind of interesting way to kind of tell Jeremy to buzz off. Um, she, yeah. like, kind of plays a waif-like character to make him think he has to save her by yes. flying over I to need the other a side strong, of the I need a strong man. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's two moments she kind of performs that kind of exaggerated yeah, yeah. Disney femininity, if you will. Which, is, um, which is, I suppose is a sign of consciousness. It's part of her ability to... Her, her ability to perform yeah. is an ability to yes. be aware of so, registers. So Jeremy is... No, sorry. Your Jeremy is American. He's voiced by um, Dom... Uh, DeLuise. Dom DeLuise, who is a sort of stalwart of the Bloom... Um, uh, of the Bluth, sorry, uh, sort of world. Yeah. It comes up again and again and again. Um, sometimes, I, I, if I remember rightly, more successfully in other movies, but we'll see if, if and when we come to them. Um, but everyone, I think all the, the wise, other... The wise characters, so I was thinking... Oh, no, you're right, the owl's American, isn't he? So, yeah, John, yeah, John Carradine, yeah, but it's... I was thinking of Derek Jacobi as oh, Nicodemus. Yes. Um, Derek, Derek, Derek Jacobi as Claudius yes. as as Nicod uh, Nicodemus. Yeah. Although um, Elizabeth Hartman, Mrs. Brisby, was is American. Yeah. I can't remember if she plays. And the kids are American, and, and yeah. Uncle um, Auntie Vole is. And, and you know, the, the the film features an early performance from Will Wheaton um, as Martin Brisby, oh, really? one, of the, one of the children. Okay. But a lot of um, you don't really know much about the. Um, the farmers, so the, the Mr. and Mrs. Farmer Fitzgibbons, I should say, yeah. um, and the son, um, Billy. But you get, it just it struck it, me, I don't have much to say it, about it. Is it just trading on that classic, you know, British art, quote unquote, old Trains. world, more civilized, age, yeah, civilized maybe. kind of thing? Um, uh, how do we make the rats sound civilized? We give them British accents, yeah. um, kind of thing. <laughs> possibly, possibly, yeah. I just um, thought it was an interesting. Yeah, that is true. Scope. Um, I guess the only other thing to say is, is just back to that thing about sliding scales yes. and 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 the tension between magic and who wields magic, who wields industry, all that sort of stuff. Is obviously the end of the story of Jonathan Brisby, Mrs. Jonathan Brisby, Mr. Jonathan Brisby, is that Jonathan was also. A mouse, a mouse of Nim. He was um, also injected with this serum. Yeah. And there are hints that obviously Mrs. Brisby is taught her skills partially from Jonathan. Yeah. So he bestows his intelligence 
on to her. We can get back into gender issues on that. But I am moment on a plot point. So there is a there is a sense non scientific. It's, well. it's not just about you. You know, it's not just about genetics here. There aren't just chosen rats and non-chosen people. There is not just civilization and non-civilization. Yeah. You can you can civil quote unquote civilize the non-civilized and 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 those that are quote unquote non-civilized can attain civilized status through work and effort and practice and labor. Yeah. So there is a complication to that just by that character's arc as well. Yeah. Um, no, it's yeah, it's not just magic. I, and I suppose my sort of mild, mild, mild criticism of the of the film is the use of. The, at the end, when the when the Brisby home is, um, it's raining and the Brisby home is sort of sinking into the mud. Yeah. That because the rats are unable, which is surprising because the rats are more human-like in, sure. in their, in their um, uh, behaviour, they can't raise it using pulleys and and their their own industry. Um, the film leans on the the magic to solve the the sure. thing, and that was the, that was the only. Sort of, and I was thinking about the relationship between between magic and, and industry yes. in that sense. Um, I think we need a little bit more rules explained about what that ruby's supposed to do because yes. it's not really explained. It's sort of added last minute. It would yeah. seem. I think I get the thematic point it's trying to make, which is you know ultimately all the powers of industry don't triumph over magic, which is quite a high fantasy point. But I also know. feel like the film has has tried to not set that up at various moments. Um, or yes. at least shown the worth of, of industry. Yes, exactly, you're right. There's um, a, anyway. You're right, yeah. It, it, there's a, it feels like a kind of very quick full stop to a rather complicated yeah. set of contradictions and parallels. My second um, issue with the film is uh, essentially marrying off Jeremy at the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> so, so Jeremy, Jeremy's his, story yeah. is that Jeremy wants a wife uh, and Mrs. Brisby is going to teach him how to get a wife um, yeah. um, because he can't get one because he's so clumsy. Right, that, um, I didn't need that. as I didn't, I didn't feel like that his narrative needed. was a thread that needed snipping and, and tied no, up in a no. nice bow. I so felt. obviously what happens at the end is this cl equally clumsy female crow comes flying in and they all um, yep. live happily ever after. Exactly. So to, exactly. Speak, so to um, speak. So I think that's that's all, all I've got. I think yeah, we're I, almost I, at time. I, I, think that's, I think that's time. I think that's the secret of Neatmouth. Um, uh, unpacked, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a brisk little movie. It's only, what, an hour and 20 minutes yeah. long? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as I say, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of locations, there's a lot of world building going on. And I think, um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think. Bluth is a figure we must revisit again later in the you know the pot. We know we've got plenty more episodes to record, and I'm sure we will revisit him. Love a blog, yeah. Point. Love a blog on a. On a oh movie. yeah, absolutely. Anyone who's writing about Bluth out there, they should get in touch. Um, Fantasy-animation.org. There's a contact us tab. Uh, we'd love to hear something about Bluth. I think he's not that written about. No, no, no. That, uh, that so it's mentioned in yeah. animation history, but there's no dedicated work yeah. to him, or no. very little. There's lots of potential future episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I guess um, Chris has been delighted. I know. Been delightful. In the be back in the room uh, oh. with you. Uh, it's better this way. Yeah, we can go have lunch now, can't we? <laughs> we have lunch. Uh, we watched the movie here this morning. Oh, it's like old times again. Um, yes. And it was nice to revisit the movie with you and, and for you to see it for the first time. Um, I guess I better do the admin, didn't yeah. I? So you can, of course, contact us at fantasy-animation.org as well as by email. Always remember to plug the email. Fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback on this episode. Um, did we leave anything out? Did we get anything wrong? Almost certainly and almost 
certainly. Um, so let us know about it and bruise our egos, or at least <laughs> Chris's, um, because he'll probably read it before I do. Um, but of course, you can also have that conversation with us on social media. We're on Twitter, and we're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, and the handle is exactly the same, fan and in research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. Any researchers out there who want to write about Bluth, um, get in contact. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, otherwise, uh, leave us a review. Um, what else can we ask you to do? Go back and yeah, just go back and listen go, to go, some episodes. Go back and listen to some episodes on uh, star rating. Stuff yeah, like that. oh yeah, Lovely. give us a star rating. Uh, buy buy our books. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> both both were mentioned in a terrible <laughs> act of shoehorning. Um, um, we've, we've recorded it, and, and that's enough plugging. So we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. <laughs>